Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the From Our City Our Correspondent podcast. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Audrey Raj, who's the City Asia editor based in Singapore. Welcome, Audrey. Hi, Richard. Thank you for having me. Not at all. So uh, we've got a number of things to go through, but what I'm going to start with is, is just tell us about life in Singapore, because every day I read Singapore's opening up, it's all going well, then there's another massive outbreak, clamp down, clamp down. Uh, what's going on on the ground? You see, with Singapore, there are there's of course two sides of the coin. You know, Singapore was if, you, if I go back to March or earlier in this year, Singapore was really before the outbreak even occurred because of the SARS outbreak that took place in 2002, and that affected like about over 200 people. So after that, the Singapore government invested heavily in, um, in outbreak preparation, building the healthcare infrastructure. One of the biggest things Singapore did. Uh, with COVID is that um, it didn't let people, even in the, even with mild cases back into the community, basically everybody was kept in the captain hospitals. Singapore had a really good contact tracing teams who identified all the contacts of an infected person, rang them up. And there were also like harsh penalties for people who, who refused to be quarantined at home. So in that sense, Singapore did well and our numbers were pretty low. In March, it was about 200 cases, and uh, it was it was a, a lot talked about as well. And then what happened was um, there was a local cluster in one of the foreign workers' dormitory, which resulted in a sharp increase in the number of cases. As of today, Singapore has about 32,000 cases, and at least about 85% of which comes from uh, the foreign workers' dormitory. And when this happened, this led to some questions like, you know, has, did Singapore actually do the right thing? For example, uh, did, the, did the government neglect migrant workers? And if the government, maybe they should have made mask wearing mandatory from day one. We didn't do that at all. We only started doing that uh, sometime in March, I believe. And uh, so that kind of like raised a few questions. And then we went into a circuit breaker. And that circuit breaker is actually sort of coming to an end uh, on the 1st of June. But this will be rolled out in three phases. So what does this mean? I mean, here in uh, London, where, you know, we can go out a bit more, uh, we can meet a friend in the park. What can you do there? And what can't you do still? So the phase one, uh, okay, the reason why, you know, they're doing it in three phases is because a couple of weeks, of, I mean, if you go back to mid-March onwards, all the way till April, we had like a thousand over cases a day and that's halved. And now we're having like 500-ish or 400 plus cases. So the phase one involves, you know, reopening of some economic activities that do not pose high risk of transmission. And this is like selected services like uh, motor vehicles, like air conditioning and hairdressing and stuff like that. The second phase will allow for social activities, which is in smaller groups and more firms can open businesses gradually. The third phase is when, you know, things go back to uh, possibly uh, in normal, it's back to business as usual, and senior citizens would be allowed to do things day to day, back to normal things again. Right, okay, good. Uh, so let's talk a bit about work. You're working from home, the rest of your team's working from home. Uh, but it seems like you've still got plenty to write about in terms of what's happening in the asset management world and, and the wealth management world there? 
Yes, we are. I mean, I mean, we're working from home. It doesn't hasn't changed anything in terms of news. In fact, we've had more news to write about since the pandemic and how that's affecting markets and stuff. Um, if anything, uh, it's it's working from home hasn't changed any part of the editorial on how we do things here. Good. Okay. And um, I noticed one of the things you've been talking about lately is is uh, and I know we've discussed this privately before is is the growth of ESG in. Asian investing and, and what the family offices are looking for. Uh, has this been stimulated by the pandemic, do you think? Oh, yes, definitely. If anything, the, the pandemic has raised like a few issues, you know, um, climate change has come a lot more in focus. Companies with the highest ESG ratings have proven to be more resilient in the face of the coronavirus market crash as well. Um, there was one study that, you know, I just came to find out done by XR Investment Management. We did an analysis of how companies with different ESG uh, ratings performed during the bear market for stocks and bonds. And stocks that were categorized as ESG leaders outperformed the index, apparently. So, if anything, ESG has definitely uh, come a lot more in focus. And is this a demand coming from investors, from wealthy individuals or from within the industry itself, do you think? It's definitely coming from investors as well. Investors are being more cautious about where they put the money as well because um, you know, there's always been that argument with the ESG-supported ESG funds, you know, do they give decent returns? But you know, a lot of wealth managers, in fact, even asset managers are saying that they provide really good returns. And given that the pandemic is highlighting the importance of ESG, there is really no doubt to stay away from it. Right. Okay. Uh, let's have a look at something else. Uh, and this, you know, I, I worked in Asia 40 years ago. Uh, he said embarrassing himself and I was based in Hong Kong. And, you know, then you had the massive tussle between Hong Kong and Singapore, which was going to be the primary money center. And that, that's been going on ever since. And it obviously went through the Ch- Chinese retaking Hong Kong uh, then you had the unrest last year, which I think saw quite a flight of money from Hong Kong to Singapore. Uh, then you had the pandemic, and and now you've had the Chinese preparing to to increase their their grip on Hong Kong uh, dissent and over aspects of law. Uh, are you seeing more flights of money from Hong Kong, and is this benefiting Singapore? It, it, stocks in Hong Kong are not doing very well, you know. Uh, from, and it's still early days because it still started. So Hong Kong stocks are not doing really well. And if you look at it, when the initial thing started last year, was it? Um, there was a lot of debate about maybe Singapore is the beneficiary of that because you know in Asia we've always had who's the financial hub is it Singapore or Hong Kong so Singapore has been a bit of a beneficiary of that as well. But when you speak to asset managers. You do not, you, no one says that, you know, they're ruling out Hong Kong entirely, not at all, definitely. Okay. But, you, I mean, since you are, I know it's got a lot of clients in Asia and they've got one half of their office in Singapore and one half in Hong Kong. Uh, is there any sign of them shifting their resources from, from Hong Kong? Uh, I mean, you know, Singapore is inherently more stable, uh, if only because it hasn't got cli- uh, China making a claim on it. Uh, are you seeing a shift in, in operations? No, definitely not. We're not hearing that at all at the moment. Uh, we haven't heard of anybody shifting operations. And in fact, when you speak about China, you know, 
regardless of what's happened in the market or what China's doing right now, a lot of people are still very much bullish on China. No one's ever, I don't, 10 out of 10 asset managers or even investors that investors that we speak to are very bullish on the Chinese market going forward. Okay, and they're not, so you think this, the, the developments of the last two weeks towards Hong Kong will just, you know, they're getting big play in the newspapers and on television over here. It's, everyone's a bit more sanguine over there, are they? They're used to it, maybe. You see, the thing with Hong Kong, it started like, you know, many months ago, and now this has started again because of the fact that how it all started the second time round is that, you know, Hong Kong decided to announce plans to introduce a national security law, of course. Under that law, people can be punished for criticizing Beijing, and this already happens in China as well. But to be fair, uh, Hong Kong was required to draft that national security law, and it's they haven't done it for the last 23 years. So China has actually uh, stepped in to do that. I think... Um, investors should be, what they should be looking out for definitely is the US-China trade war that could just be sparked all over again, you know, given what's happening. So that is something that is a lot more of a concern right now compared to what's happening in Hong Kong and China. Yeah, and of course, all bets are off because we have the general election in the United States in November. Uh, what about what about the region as a whole? I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's a big attraction we're talking about certainly places like Thailand, Malaysia, uh, and the Philippines, and Indonesia. It is a massive draw for tourists from around the world. Uh, fabulous place to visit. Uh, any signs of that coming back that you hear of? Or is it still essentially cut off? Um, you see, the thing with, yeah, you see, um, in Asia to be specific, Southeast Asia is a hotspot for a lot of tourists uh, coming from Australia, uh, the UK, America, everywhere. And if you look at tourism specifically, the country that's most affected by uh, the pandemic is definitely um, Thailand, because Thailand's GDP, if uh, if I'm if I'm if I'm if I'm correct, 12% of the country's GDP is dependent on tourism. But given that China is opening up its market again, uh, the Thai government is actually betting on the Chinese uh, Chinese tourists to come back to the country. So it's, if anything, I think it's picking up a little bit. It's a it's a little bit more positive compared to what it was maybe three months ago. What do you see happening over the? You know, I'm going to throw you a crystal ball question there. How do you see things changing over the next few months? In terms of? Uh, in terms of, of what's going to happen to Singapore, what's going to happen to the stock markets there? Uh, are investors getting more bullish? I mean, we've had this incredible rise in markets, particularly in the States, since uh, late March. Some people think it's overdone. What's the mood of investors over there? I think... Uh... The moon is changing slightly, if anything. Um, you know, although, for example, although China didn't specify a growth target, it's definitely uh, doing things to ease up the economy. In terms of markets, I think Asian investors are going to be waiting a lot more on Asia X Japan equities, and China and Singapore will probably be most favored compared to um, Hong Kong and Thailand. And in fact, wealth managers are recommending that as well. So that seems like a safer bet given. Uh, both how Singapore and China are doing better. So in that sense, in comes to markets, we see exactly where that's headed that way. Right. And uh, I know you, you had a round table today about mobility and, and I'm talking to 
uh, some people tomorrow, pretty much about the same thing in Asia. Uh, is this a big thing now, remaking, our, remaking the cities? Make, uh, uh, and, and I know in many respects, Asian cities are more advanced than the ones over here. Uh, is that a big thing going forward, do you think? Yes, it is. I think it's a big thing globally. Mobility, it's about thinking about the future, thinking about 10, 15 years down the road when we're talking about EVs, we're talking about, you know, car sharing, for example, these type of concepts. But given, but there are lots of opportunities. While there are lots of opportunities in this investment theme, there is also risk involved, meaning that, you know, the rollout of 5G is a big thing for this theme. But there's a bit of a hindrance here, given the whole Huawei situation as well. Right. So. It's definitely something that is uh, an up-and-coming theme. And when I did the roundtable today, five out of five participants were bullish, definitely bullish on the theme. And they were definitely allocating that as a long-term investment for investors. Right. That's always pretty dangerous when everyone has the same view. You had no dissenting voices at all. No, we did. You know, when I spoke a little bit about, um, you know, uh, car sharing, that part, that, you know, there was a bit of a, a little bit of a take back there because with car sharing, you know, what we're seeing at the moment is that car sharing, car hailing, you know, all these different concepts about sharing cars. It's currently in its in, a, in, 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 in one of those new trends where it's still in a first stage. But given that it's only in the first stage of development, we are seeing a, quite a bit of mergers and acquisition. For example, you know, uh, Grab in Southeast Asia bought over Uber, Uber's right. business. Yeah, so there's a bit of a trend there. So what's exactly happening with businesses? I mean, should people be electrifying to move forward? And then if you notice on the weekend, Hertz, you know, they um, declared bankruptcy. But right. the interesting thing about it is that Sinjabi, which represents Hertz in Singapore, said that it's still business as usual for them. It's not affecting their Singapore operations at all. Right. Okay. So what happens in the United States doesn't necessarily happen in Asia. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, it's something like that. Okay. Uh, look, Audrey, we'll wrap up there. I think, you know, you've got a very exciting uh, future on your hands there in Asia because, you know, we are 20 years into uh, what people call the Asian century. So... I will leave you to get on with that. Thank you for joining us today and uh, we'll speak very soon. 